This is UCD Business Impact, the new podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week we will be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and indeed the world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Okay, now over recent months on this podcast, we've been really trawling through the sectors, almost assessing damage in various ones. And uh, we keep getting drawn back to almost magnetically to the aviation sector because it's been so upended and and so devastated. And recently we were talking to the ex-GPA chief executive, Patrick Blaney, about some of this. And as our conversation ended, he said, if you really want to know what's happening in aviation, then particularly in the leasing world, there's only one man you should talk to. And he said he's based in Dublin. He's in the office just off Stevens Green, and that's Angus Kelly, the chief executive of Aircap. So we've done precisely that, and he is our guest on today's Business Impact podcast. You're very welcome along, Angus. Thank you, Emmett. Delighted to uh, to be on the pod. Now, you've been described uh, a number of times as a consummate dealmaker, and we'll come on to that uh, in a few minutes about whether you agree with that uh, description or not. But before... Let's roll back a little bit into the history. Uh, you are a UCD graduate, so uh, that's uh, certainly a markup on this particular podcast. But talk to me a little bit about your career progression and how you ended up uh, heading up a company the size of Aircap, a company with such a big global uh, footprint. Well, yeah, I am a UCD alumni and uh, very proud of it too. Uh, great institution. And uh, it gave me the springboard uh, for where I am today. I, I did a, a BCom in UCD, uh, KPMG hired me in their grad program and then put me through the master's program in, um, in Smurfits. But the day I started in KPMG, I was sent down to Shannon and I was told you were going to be down there for most of the next year, which was a good chunk of my training contract. Uh, and I was, that was GPA at the time. While I was down there, uh, they uh, requested from KPMG if uh, they could hire me once my contract finished. And, um, that happened. So I started uh, permanently there in 1998 in GPA as it was. And that's where I guess I got my, uh, my break into the industry uh, from, from, from uh, that opportunity. And was there anything in your interest or family in planes or anything of that sort before that? No, there wasn't any history of it, although my grandfather was involved in building Foynes Airport. But for me, I'll tell you, it was really the inspiration you get, because like everybody in life, you need something as you go through a career, as you start off in life. You need to latch on to something that, I suppose, fires the imagination. And growing up in Ireland in the late 80s as a teenager, there was a chat show on TV called The Late Late Show. And on that show one night was a businessman, Tony Ryan, who was the founder of GPA at that time. Uh, and GPA seemed such an exotic thing in Ireland in the 1980s, which seemed to be in a, a permanent state of recession. This guy came on and he said, we've built a global leader. We're flying people all over the world. We're buying and selling airplanes. We're... And it just always remember that interview and thought, my God, can this be done in Ireland? And of course it can be done in Ireland. It just needs determination and ambition and a great team of people around you and you can do anything. Yes. So he was that, um, that, that, that inspiration. And so when I got to, GP, got to KPMG, even though GPA had fallen on very hard times uh, because of mistakes that it made and that I was keen that Aircap never repeated, no matter how bad things got, to get the opportunity to go down there, nearly everyone else in KPMG was saying, my God, Shannon, why are we going there? The Shannon Town Centre. The Shannon Town Centre, as it turned out, was uh, one Quinsworth and uh, 
uh, a pub and uh, a bookie shop. There might have been a shoe shop there as well, but that was the Shannon Town Centre. And I, I was delighted to get down there. I just thought, wow, I'm down here. I'm in this place I wanted to, to come to. And it didn't disappoint because when you got down there, you could feel, even though they'd been through an extraordinarily difficult time after a failed IPO, almost collapse of the business, there was a burning ambition to be the best. And you could sense that. And there was nothing they couldn't do. That was the view of the people internally. And that's, a very, that's absolutely vital, I think, to, to experience that in any walk of life, be it in university or be it in personal life or professional life. And no matter how, um, how ambitious you are yourself, I do think until you see up close a group of people or a person exhibit those type of traits, they're very intangible and you have to kind of see it to believe it really. And when you when, um, were in um, KPMG, did you always, did you at any stage see yourself staying there for your whole career or was that never going to be the case? Was it always going to be kind of, I'll do a few years here and then move into another sector or, or did you just see where it all would take you as a young person? Well, I was delighted to get to KPMG. I was a third generation accountant. Uh, so that was a, a big milestone for the family, being a little bit sarcastic there, the lowest <laughs> form of wit. But when I got to KPMG, Again, you've got to remember the time we grew up in. That was a very prestigious thing to have. Being a partner in KPMG or a surgeon or a partner in a law firm was, you know, in terms of prestige and remuneration, particularly the latter at the higher end of Irish society. Now, it still is a very prestigious position and very well paid. Don't get me wrong. But of course, the country has moved on. And I would have thought when I went in there, you know, being a partner in KPMG, was a great, uh, a great outcome. But I do remember the day we were brought into KPMG and one of the uh, senior partners, a guy called Gary Britton, called in the, uh, the group of us that had been hired. And he said, you know, look, this is a great opportunity for you. I think you're all going to really enjoy this experience. You're going to learn a lot over the next few years. And he said, a lot of you are going to go on from KPMG and become millionaires. Again, you need someone to say those kind of things to you, just so you remember them, that that can be done. Mm. And I'm going back again to a very different time in, in Ireland's economic history uh, for someone to, uh, to give you that ambition. So I wouldn't say that the day I got in, I was looking to leave. Certainly not. I know many were. They wanted to tick the box and move on. I do think it's a great professional training to have. I do think business life is a lot easier if you have professional training, be it from a law firm an accountancy firm, a bank, or whatever kind of professional firm it is, just so you understand how important structure is to a company, policy, procedure, and culture. I think that's very difficult to garner if, if you don't have it in a very structured environment for later on in your career. Yeah, and I think um, the aviation sector is interesting because you have someone like yourself, Michael O'Leary has an accountancy background, I think he started in SKC. You then have other people like your Willie Welches who are more operational have come from the, the airline piece. Um, you know, so there's kind of operational piece, and then there, there's people who have know and value and understand the bottom line, the financial management of these companies. I mean, do you have any sort of views on which is a better background? Or are they just different? Simple as that. I don't think the background matters. It could be legal. It could be engineering. It could be financial, be it banking or accounting. I think for me, what's more important is that when you get to running a large business or being a senior member of a large business, that 
certain founders are exceptional and extraordinary people. But I think it does help to have some training in a big organization and a successful organization to know how to manage people, to know how to structure teams and tasks to get to the right outcome. So I don't think it really matters whether you came from an airline or an accountancy firm or a bank or an engineering firm, because there's a lot of things that are similar when it comes to harnessing the talent of a team. Okay, well, let's, um, let's see how you do that with your own team. And let's roll you back a little bit to the start of this year. How early on were you guys tracking this virus, this COVID-19 in China? And did you actually envisage how big it would become, how big an impactor it would be on your business? So, so just sort of take me back to the, the boardroom or the management suite in your own company and take me through what you were thinking when this thing first kind of appeared on the radar. I was in China on the 5th of January uh, for a week. And I was in Shenzhen, which is um, in China, but near Hong Kong, which is a big logistics hub in China. And we were with a customer of ours who's uh, called SF Express. You may not have heard of them yet, but I assure you, you will. They're trying to build the equivalent of FedEx in China. They're already building their own airport. Interestingly, that airport is being built in Wuhan, which was, of course, where the outbreak started. And when I was in Shenzhen meeting the owners of the airline, I said, so how are things going with the new airport? We're all very excited. We've got lots of airplanes for you. And they said, well, well, we are, we're not going to Wuhan anytime soon. That was the first time I had heard of anything going wrong. And uh, my Chinese uh, colleagues who work for us in, in our Shanghai office said, yeah, there's rumors about things in, in Wuhan and some form of infections but uh, not much was said about that uh, in the media. The first time we really became aware of it and the scale of it was in February uh, and uh, the airlines in China coming to us saying, the government is asking us to shut down large parts of our operation due to this virus. Now we'd seen things on television, of course, the terrible scenes and and the traumatic scenes from the hospitals in Wuhan, but you've got to, remember just how huge China is. That's something we don't necessarily realize in Ireland. You know, Ireland's population would be smaller than a few suburbs of Shanghai. It's a very different scale. And so when you spend a lot of time in China, when there's an issue in a certain part of it, you're just looking at the enormity of China and you're saying, okay, well, there's an issue there. But that's like saying, you know, you're looking at North and South America and saying, well, there's an issue in Argentina. Does it really matter in in, in the southern United States or in Mexico. But of course, it became apparent to us then that it was spreading extremely rapidly and having massive detrimental impact on our customer base in China. And that's when we started to, to, to take it seriously. Of course, we did not know that it would spread so rapidly around the globe. Erroneously, we, we assumed it would be restricted to China. That clearly was not the case. And we realized that in early March and that's when really the approach to running the business on a daily basis changed dramatically late, late February, early March, I would say. Now, just for the benefit of our listeners to give the, the, an idea of the sheer scale of Aircap, I mean, you have $47 billion of assets on your books. You have over a thousand aircraft and um, you have 200 customers. 
you are described as being the largest uh, lessor of aircraft in the world, the largest owner of commercial aircraft in the world. So this is a, just a, a scale of business that, to be honest with you, uh, apart from GBA, which you mentioned, we don't really have any um, previous sort of uh, history of in Ireland because the sheer scale of it. Um, the office on Stevens Green kind of gives you a sense of just uh, how big the company is in itself. So you've got all these aircraft, um, you know, you know the history of GPA in the 90s, you, you know, it's a very cyclical industry leasing, so it's well used to prices and swings and demand going up and down. Was this something that you sort of said to your team, look, we go into full crisis mode here, there are certain things you do in these moments, or did you say to yourself, each crisis is different and you have to look at the specific effects of this one and not really kind of take out the rule book from the past? I guess we've always approached the business, and if you listen to any of our earnings call we're listed on the new york stock exchange as well so we do report every quarter we say to the investors look we don't know when something is going to go wrong in this industry or in the world but sooner or later something will and if you're trying to prepare for us after the fact you're probably not going to make it through you've always got to prepare in advance so you're always running the business on the basis that you will have a significant challenge. In my career, so we had the, the aftermath of the first Gulf War, which led to a huge downturn in the early 90s and the failed GPA IPO. Then we had 9-11 and SARS. Then we had the great financial crisis. So 9-11 SARS were 2001, 2003. Then we had the great financial crisis 2009 through 2012, really. Then we've had, obviously, uh, the most recent crisis, which has been the most extreme, the COVID pandemic. So from our perspective, uh, we were always of the view, and I'd learned these lessons in GPA. And as one of my investors uh, said to us, a guy called uh, Leon Cooperman, who's a very famous hedge fund manager, in one of our meetings said to me, listen, listen, Angus, in this business, don't ever run out of, don't ever run out of balls and don't ever run out of cash. And it's sage advice in this business. So we always carry enough liquidity on hand, always have, to cover the next 18 months of obligations without ever having to raise more money. So we will always have around 10 billion of liquidity on hand so that we didn't know when some crisis would strike. We just knew at some point it would. And so we've always carried this 10 billion. That's a very large cost to carry 10 billion. It's, dead cap, dead, it's a dead cost of over 100 million a year for the last 10 years to carry the 10 billion. But it's the insurance policy of the company. And I remember in one, uh, another shareholder meeting with uh, one of our investors in New York, he said to me, this was two years ago, he said, listen, I'm fed up with you guys carrying all this, this liquidity. You know, we could boost net income by another 100 plus million a year, and that'd be good for the stock price. I said, it would be in the short term. There's no doubt about it. But I said, listen, if, if you, you, I said, you have children. He said, I do. I said, would you send them out into the world uninsured? He said, no, of course I wouldn't. That'd be stupid. But you're not my child. I can sell you in the morning. So <laughs> that is why we, we were able to survive this, is that we didn't listen to that view. And we did what was right for the business in the long term. But that, even though we took those steps, this is still a challenge that is beyond anything we have seen in this industry since its inception. Now, Angus, one of the ways to maybe kind of draw an analogy of what you guys do is, is you, you, you're a bit like a landlord. You know, bear with me on this. It's, it may be a bit strange, this analogy, but essentially 
Call us a Skylord. Yeah, Skylords. You essentially rent out planes. People can fly them. People can leave them on the ground if that's what they want to do. Obviously, that wouldn't be a very sensible thing to do. Uh, Along comes a recession like this, potentially a depression, some people would call it. I mean, obviously, airlines all over the world, and we have some of them not too far from us here in Dublin, with planes on the ground. You've struck a leasing agreement, which means you, according to that leasing agreement, should still and are you know obligated to be paid. Uh, like in terms of negotiating and, and talking to airlines, how do you see that relationship going? I mean, a lot of these airlines are eating a lot of losses with these airplanes on the ground. They're battling away on quarantines and so on and so forth with the governments. I mean, where can you be flexible with them or do you play very hardball? Like, how do you manage that particular relationship with your, your aircraft uh, customers? You have to be realistic. If your customer base is generating no revenue and you say to them, pay me. They say, well, I can't. So what you've got to do is work with them. And if I start what we did in China, where we first saw it. In China, what happened was the airlines came to said, look, the government's asked us to shut down approximately 80% of our operation. So we're not going to get any revenue, but we still have massive fixed costs. An airline is a business with massive fixed costs. To give you an idea, American Airlines pre-COVID was burning 70 million a day in cash. And that's fine when it's generating $80 million a day in cash. But what you have to be realistic about also is we will say to the airline, okay, look, you can't just not pay us if there's no plan or if there's no other support being offered by other stakeholders in the business. So in China, where we saw it first, the government came in and said, okay, this is critical infrastructure to the country. And every country is of the view that airlines and aviation is critical infrastructure to enable commerce, to enable the free movement of goods and people. So they said, we're going to put in a a lot of money into these airlines. The shareholders can either match us or get diluted in their equity position. And then the creditors have to extend credit during this period of time. And that's an equitable outcome. And that's based on our view that the business is viable. It should be noted that not every airline was viable. It was reliant on extraordinarily cheap capital that was washing around the global financial system for the last five years due to quantitative easing. So where you had an airline that was viable and you had support coming in from the state or from the current shareholders, and then we were asked to do our bit, we said that's a fair enough outcome and that works. And in China, the peak for Chinese traffic, just to give you some data, was on the 28th of January for Chinese New Year. That um, then collapsed down to its bottom on the 21st of February. Within a month, it was down over 85% traffic in China. Today, traffic is almost back up to 70%. So those airlines are viable businesses, but they would not have been viable for a period of time without third-party support, primarily from state aid. And that is true in Europe and the United States also, as we're seeing. But the really important point to make as we look at our industry is, will people travel again? The answer is unequivocally yes. In that relatively short period of time, we could see it every day the amount of air traffic in China growing and growing and growing, and it's, still, and it's growing every day still. So people are getting back on airplanes once the government tells them it's safe to do so and what procedures to follow. 
We're seeing the exact same thing in Europe. The European market bottomed on the 12th of April at 2,099 flights. It would normally be doing on that day about 32,000 flights. Since the 12th of April, as of yesterday, we did 9,320 flights in Europe. So already a fourfold increase. So what we are seeing is the same behavior. And that is in large part due to the fact that in Europe, absent, absent Ireland, we did have an announcement last night that we would start to reduce the quarantine for certain countries from the 9th of July, but the Europeans had been doing it um, already. And in the US, we saw the same thing. Their market bottomed on the 14th of April with 87,000 passengers. Um, that's down from over 2.2 million, but they're almost at 600,000 passengers yesterday. So in those three major markets in the world, we can see the consumer behavior identical. It's identical. The recovery trend, the rate of recovery is absolutely identical. Now, it's still going to take us a couple of years to get back to where we were in 2019, but it is very interesting to see the consumer behavior and how the consumer responds and the desire to travel. And in terms of aircraft, because it's sometimes it's best to just analyze the, the oversupply. So if we get back to, you know, you said, as you said, you're not going to get back to the peak, but we're climbing back up there. Who, who, who is going to be left holding the, the excess supply, the glut of extra planes? Obviously, you've got a lot of aircraft, but in terms of the industry globally, who, who's going to be kind of left holding the bag when we don't quite come back to where we were? So what, what's happening is airlines are going bankrupt, of course. That's the normal cut and thrust of our business. Um, it, happens, it happens regularly anyway in all times. But at the moment, of course, there's an elevated level of air, airline bankruptcies. So there's a couple of things that will happen. The airplanes, generally about half an airline's fleet, give or take, will be leased. So the lessors will go in, they'll take back their airplanes. Uh, they will ultimately find homes for them. At the moment, of course, there's, no, there's very little demand for someone to, to take an air delivery of an airplane right now when much of their own fleet is grounded, but that will change. So the leasing companies will have to park those airplanes for several months, and then they'll start to try and, and release them back out. There'll be banks who, it's interesting, when an airline says they own their airplanes, well, they, they own a small part of them. They don't really, they're generally financed with uh, bank debt. And so when the airline goes bust, the banks will take their airplanes back. They'll be much slower because it's a consortium of banks generally. And in order to release an airplane, you'll have to invest money in the aircraft. And the banks hate to do that. Going back to their credit committee saying, we've taken this airplane back from Mexico. We need to invest another few million in it. And then hopefully we'll find a home for it. And by the way, we have to coordinate with five other banks who are in the facility. And they're very bad at that, the banks. That's why they should never really lend directly to airlines, the banks, because they're hopeless at it mm. when it comes to actually managing a, a, a default from an airline. Um, some, airline, some airplanes then will just get scrapped, the older technology assets, because they won't be, won't be worth reconfiguring them or overhauling the engines. To overhaul an engine, say, on an A320 or a 737, the main airplanes, Ryanair and Aer Lingus fly, could be anywhere between four and six million per engine. So, you know, you get up to some big numbers pretty quickly. Uh, and then they'll have orders from Boeing and Airbus, and when they go bust, the order, orders will get cancelled. So that's what happens. The industry has seen plenty of these before. And so, yes, there is a, a downturn in air traffic now. There's a downturn in demand for airplanes. There's a lot of airplanes parked. 
you can't forget, and it's very hard in any part of life when things are dark, they will get better. And sometimes it's darkest just before the dawn. You've got to keep focused on that as well. You've got to make sure you get through to the dawn. Don't take your eye off the fact that things will turn around again and where there is opportunity. And if you're able to act and your balance sheet is strong enough, you should be thinking about those opportunities as well as they come. Because one thing's for sure, on the far side of this, what we're seeing is that the airlines will have significantly more debt. Many of them will have state aid. Now, in the end, the objective of any airline management team will be to get rid of state aid as fast as possible. Because state aid will impair them strategically because it will not want them to expand. It won't want to take any difficult decisions about um, labor and reducing labor. And furthermore, the reality is it will restrict management compensation. And it's been my experience that self-interest trumps everything in human behavior. So that will be the objective of the airlines. We saw it coming out of the financial crisis with the, with the banks. It will be repeated here. So that will mean that their willingness to go to Boeing and Airbus and buy vast amounts of airplanes will be a lot less, and they won't have the ability to do it for the most part because they have so much leverage anyway. So on the far side of this, for, the, for, for smart lessors, there should be a greater demand for our product. That trend was coming anyway, that airlines were moving away from owning assets, just like Uber doesn't own any cars, or Deliveroo doesn't own that much of its infrastructure itself. What we're going to see is them become more asset-light businesses, and that trend is being accelerated by the crisis. And so we have to be cognizant of that. And how do we make sure Aircap is, has, is observing trends, which we generally do before anyone else in the industry because of our scale, but then trying to influence the trend and act on it. And Angus, once you get through that period and you've sketched it out uh, very vividly there, the other one that's waiting for you or potentially waiting for the industry is the area of climate change. Um, how that's going to play out, and what I mean by that is the impact on the industry, where we're hearing carbon taxes going to be increasing in Ireland, it's going up in a lot of other countries. The actual externalities produced by the aviation industry are being questioned. There's billions going into research to try and make uh, cleaner fuel, ethanol and so on, work for the airline industry. Uh, when we get through this uh, COVID crisis, it, it, do you see climate change as the next one on the horizon, or do you think the it's, it's, being, it's not as big a thing as we should all be, uh, you know, we're talking about. Well, it is definitely something that's coming at, different, at a different pace in different parts of the world. We all know that aviation is crucial to global GDP. And if we think of Ireland as a small rock on the edge of Europe that no one needs to come to, we should be very careful what we wish for. It's absolutely vital that connectivity to this country is as great as it can possibly be. Because for much of our history, people have either sailed around or flown over this country. We've done a tremendous job in building that connectivity. And I can tell you firsthand from dealing with many American companies that the attraction of coming to Ireland has been greatly enhanced by the increased service across the Atlantic. It's too easy for someone in San Francisco or New York to say, oh, let's just go to London or Amsterdam. It's just easier to get there for me. That is something that's taken us a long time to build up and we should do it. That being said, the environment is vital as well. And in aviation, we have to lead uh, rather than be dragged 
by an inevitable trend again. And I do think that that trend was there and this crisis is not creating new trends, but is accelerating ones that were there. And for me, how that acceleration will occur is through state aid. The state aid that is coming into airlines now, in some cases, it's quite explicit, where it says that you have to reduce carbon emissions. Now you can do that by stop by reducing your flying, which isn't really the answer, or by having the most fuel efficient airplanes you can have. That means penalizing older, less fuel efficient assets flying into the European Union. I do think the European Union will lead this, but we have to realize um, that the European Union is a massive economic block, so it has big influence around the world. But really, you need the three big economic blocks in the world before it will become a reality. That's just the way of the world, unfortunately, the realpolitik. Until the European Union, the United States and China act in unison on this, I think there'll be a lot of happy talk and not as much action. Ultimately, the three of them will act in unison. And I do believe that Europe is leading the way on this, uh, as we can see that in some of the bailout packages that are being put in place by European governments. Uh, and I believe that over time, it will be followed in the two other major economies in the world. And once those three economies decide to do something, the rest of the world has no choice but to follow. Okay, well, that's interesting. I would see, it's, in other words, it's a matter of time and um, how the political forces come together and align. We'll see what happens in November, obviously, with the US. That's obviously going to be vital. One final question for you, Angus, because I know you're under time pressure. You've been CEO of the company since 2011. You're coming up to your decades in the role. You're a great, the company and yourself, Aircap, it's a great addition to the Irish ecosystem. Your office, as I said, centred there on Stevens Green. It's a, a flagship company to have in the cluster that we formed here in Ireland. And a lot of our listeners will want to know and want me to ask you, do you see Aircap, regardless of whether it's led by Angus Kelly or not, but do you honestly see Aircap staying in Ireland, being part of the ecosystem of the cluster that has developed here in Ireland? And is there anything that we should all be concerned about, whether companies like your own might at some point drift out of Ireland. So can you just tell us a little bit about what you think in that area? Well, I hope we will stay here, but we do have to be realistic. And, and the discussion is not about one company um, or one industry. We don't have natural resources. We have a small population. We need to build industry in this country. We've been extraordinarily successful over the last 20 years and the last 10 years in doing that and in providing everyone in the country with a job. That's quite an achievement for a relatively young state to do that. It's been done through an awful lot of hard work by a lot of people who came before me and others. But it's not something we can take for granted. For example, before the coronavirus, I was in Warsaw. And Poland is competing vigorously for the IT companies to come there, for the pharmaceutical companies. We have Brexit where the UK is going to compete ferociously to increase its share of FDI. So we have to protect what we have. But Brexit is a tremendous opportunity for this country too. And people have to see it as that. And we have to be brave enough to seize that opportunity. 
FDI will still be available on large scale for those countries who are able to seize it. That means having the infrastructure you need to attract people and whether you like it or not, the tax system to attract executives as well. That's just a reality. As I said, no one is going to move to this country to pay materially more in tax than they would in their home country or another country. And we can say all we want about fairness and this and that, it won't matter. No one's going to come. And for us, if we're going to build our own world leaders, we need to have people in this country who are trained and work with the decision makers and the value creators of large global players. That means it's fantastic to get everyone a job, as I said. And it's amazing that we have the companies of the future here, not the companies of the past. Google, Facebook, you name it, they're here, the pharmaceutical businesses. These are industries of the future. What we need to do now is make sure that we get higher up the value chain in bringing in the most talented, highest, I'm going to say it again, highest earning part of the company, because then young Irish people learn so much from them. And then you get all the spin-off businesses that you really want, the high value ones that will ensure our own economic prosperity for a long time to come. And of course, it's a charged, highly charged political decision to say, are we happy with what we have? Or are we going to go and compete to get the best? And certainly with Brexit coming at us, the opportunity is there because we're the only English speaking country in the European Union. The UK, of course, has dominated FDI into Europe for the last 40 years. We have a chance to do it, but we have to be brave and politically brave to offer incentives to those decision makers to come into this country. Um, I could just, because look, we have expats all over the world. We move them all over the place. I can tell you with experience that no one else has, uh, but it seems fairly logical. If you say to someone, I want you to move to this country, I'm going to pay you less. Will you move your family? A hundred out of a hundred, the answer is no. So, that's something that we do have to realize, particularly now as the world goes into a lower period of economic growth, a global recession this year. For us to think that the, comp the, the competitive forces around us, which are already pretty great over the last five years, won't intensify significantly, it would be naive in the extreme. Warning, Mangus, uh, thank you very much for that. And I uh, hopefully, as politicians, I'll, <laughs> we'll put it onto our channels and see do they listen. Uh, you've been very unambiguous in the message and you have experience of moving people around the world. So I think it's, 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 it's pinned, underpinned by some authority and credibility, to put it mildly. So thank you very much for that. Thank you for the earlier part of the interview as well. It's been really uh, a really good work through of what's happened from COVID onwards. And I really appreciate you coming on. You're very welcome.